In this episode, we take a look at tariffs and consider whether in a modern context, they can be the answer to boosting American manufacturing. We'll also discuss polyamory and the way it seems to be having a bit of a moment in the culture right now. Hello, welcome to the Call Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keyes, and riding shotgun is a man. But when it comes to podcasting, he's definitely a big boy. Tunde Ogonlana, Tunde, are you ready to show the people the way you move? Yeah, I got to follow up to that because as a proud father who's raised young kids, I guess if I'm riding next to you in shotgun, I'm officially am a big boy. <laughs> that's, that's not, that means I'm not in the back on the booster seat like when my kid was four or five, right? Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. Okay, cool. I'm going <laughs> to right, go tell right. my wife you just upgraded me. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you were there all along, man. So before we get started, if you enjoy the show, I ask that you please hit subscribe on YouTube or on your podcasting app. You know, it really helps out as far as uh, us trying to get the show in front of more people. Now, we're recording this on January 30th, 2024. And Day. To get us started, more generally, we've seen Donald Trump talking about a 10% tar- putting a 10% tariff across the board on everything, that, all imports. And uh, we've even seen now that Nikki Haley is, is uh, the person going against him, running against him in the Republican primary, making a point to push back and distinguish herself in saying being against tariffs and so forth. So where do you stand on the use of tariffs in, um, in the modern U.S.? Uh, you know, are you a free trade absolutist or a protectionist or somewhere in between? Well, remember, only the Sith deal in absolutes. Okay. So I can't say that I'm. Well, you're one of neither those. of those two. <laughs> I, I, I got to lean more towards the Jedi and the Republic. So, um, no, but it's a great question. I would say this. You know, another another reason I can say I appreciate President or former President Trump because as he rails about something, it kind of forces me to go look into it a little bit deeper. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I started looking at, okay, we do about 3 trillion of uh, imports annually. Uh, so a 10% tariff across the board on all imports would be an extra $300 billion hit, most likely going towards the consumer. So it's interesting because it's a good question. Well, what you're ask. saying oh, there is oh, that what a tariff well, is basically is a tax that's levied by the government on, in this case, we're talking about on imports. So anything that's imported, you're going to slap 10% on, and that 10% goes to the government. Meaning, like if you import a $100 uh, you know, television, then the, the importer is going to pay $100 for the, the television they're importing, plus $10 to the government for the 10% that's added on. So you're saying, in addition to the $3 trillion in goods that are actually brought in, if you add 10% on top of that, that's $300 billion to go to the government. But the importer then turns around and sells it, and they're going to put that 10%, the extra 10% they had to pay, they're going to they're gonna have to make that up somehow, typically with a higher price to, a, you know, to the person they're going to sell to. Yep. Hold on, you took our thunder away for like 10 minutes from now. <laughs> that was good to be the first 10 Come minutes. On, man. No, but uh, <laughs> let me just answer the question real quick because then we'll keep moving because it's a quick answer. I mean, I would say this. Based on just how I think, also my profession uh, in wealth management and just my own education on our system, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely more of a free market leaner. Um, I would say I'm, I'm indoctrinated into kind of uh, neoclassical kind of uh, uh, um, way that we look at economics since the 1930s, I guess. Let's put it that way. Um, but I would say this. 
I recognize that kind of in a strategic and maybe surgical way, um, for various reasons, tariffs can make sense, whether for revenue reasons or for protectionist reasons. So that's why I would say, you know, just to finish off my joke about not being a Sith, um, that, uh, that, that, you know, that's why I can't say I'm absolute, but I would say I, I lean more towards a free and open market type of system. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, where I, I land. Well, I think that has the, the free uh, having less barriers to trade has we've seen that benefit the you know, like uh, you can't say everyone, but you can say like you've seen we've seen that benefit the world in terms of economic growth. Now, the the, the spoils of this growth and the all the additional productivity haven't necessarily been spread amongst all of the, the the stakeholders. And so that's where the idea of people who push against the the, the idea of just unfettered free trade uh, push against the saying, okay, well, essentially what you're doing when you have complete free trade is you're having all the workers in the world compete against each other because people will just go wherever is cheaper to, to make things or to, to do things and then import them around the world where they want freely. Uh, particularly, I think two things that have really, def- that, that did define the 20th centuries from this standpoint is the, the, the kind of push towards less barriers from a trade standpoint, from a tariff standpoint, and also the ability, the inc- improved and increased ability to move things around. So when you put both of those together, then it's just one thing if there aren't any tariffs and it takes three months to get things from place to place or six months from things to get from place to place. But if you can get things, move things around in a matter of weeks so all around the world, then that changes uh, the calculation as well. But to me, I think it's actually less about being on one end of the spectrum or the other. I think both, I, I, I tend to not want to take tools out of the, the or take, take arrows out of the quiver. So tariffs can form a part of a trade policy that can be used in a targeted way. Now, tariffs can be used for revenue, to, to generate revenue. We'll talk, I know, shortly about how the U.S. generated, U.S. government generated most of its revenue uh, in the first part of the, the country's existence through tariffs. So they can be used to generate revenue. They also can be used to support or protect, so to speak, certain certain industries. So if you want to have a certain industry, but you know that that the businesses in that industry in your company country won't be able to compete from a price standpoint with other countries, either due to uh, the, the, the cheapness or availability of raw materials or the cheapness of labor, then you can use a tariff to balance that out. But they can be used for other things as well. And so to me, I think the question is less, it, it, I asked the question, so it's kind of disingenuous to say this, but it's less about it being free trade absolutists or protectionists, and more about, well, what are you doing? You what, are, what would you be using the tariffs for? I think you have to ask that that question. Why is the tariff going in to really be able to evaluate whether it's something that makes sense in this modern context? You know, because things are not, you know, like I said, the U.S. used them for so long, but things are not what they were in 1820 right now from a global economic perspective. Yeah, I think um, that's a good that's a good kind of segue as to kind of the why, right? Why why like really peeling it back if we go thirty thousand feet of kind of human history and the kind of societies, right? Like why would you have a tariff? Well, it's just like why would you have any form of tax? Uh, so there's one reason, and it's interesting, and you know, again, it's I go down a rabbit hole and I start you know going down where I can't even get out sometimes. So I started looking at some historic stuff. Very interesting. I mean, there's there's records going back to ancient Greece, um, the port of Piraeus, uh, as as far back as uh, 399 BC in the Peloponnesian War. Um, the Athenians. That was one of the largest ports in the area in, in the Greek uh, Empire, at least on on the Greek mainland. And um, so they had a tax, uh, an import tax, which they call the tariff. 
uh, for any goods that were being imported through that port. And that's how they raised money to, to operate and, you know, have their military funded and all that. And then there was an, another example I saw from the 14th century in Great Britain, King Edward III. Um, and it was the beginning, this, this looks like this went over uh, for a series of about 100 years, um, the beginning of what was more of protectionist reason for tariffs, uh, where they wanted to protect the wool industry in England. And there was a lot of competition, you know, from France and Germany that also had shepherds with sheep. And, um, you know, Spain, like we did the show on uh, The Alchemist, the young man was a shepherd. So in order to make sure that their uh, shepherds, meaning the British shepherds, had more uh, power and were able to produce more wool to compete uh, better with, with, with their neighbors, um, the, the British put excessive tariffs on foreign imports of wool and um, therefore propped up their domestic wool production, which then led by the end of, the, of kind of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period, uh, England was the largest producer of wool in the world an exporter of it as well. So it, 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 it was interesting to learn some of that stuff that there's reasons behind, you know, some of it's taxation in terms of uh, the reason for tariffs for, for the purpose of revenue for a nation. Others might be protectionist, uh, either to punish maybe an adversary, a rival nation that might be producing some kind of good and selling it to you, or it could be um, to, to prop up your own economy, so to speak. Well, yeah, it, it, but protection actually, I would I would distinguish the using it as a, a quote unquote weapon, you know, trade war, so to speak, where you're saying, okay, well, we want to slow the flow of we want to slow the flow of money going to you for goods, you you and, and a different country, and your ability to sell us this and that by putting a tariff on whatever product. Uh, I think when we're looking at this, and and you mentioned your own background, and I think this is a very important here because all of us, you know, do who are alive right now and are, you know, kind of available to even listen to something like this. We're raised in a time where tariffs are generally been can looked at, frowned upon, looked at as negative because there's been this trend towards more global trade. And that has increased economic activity around the world. Now, there have been costs on this. And so people point to to the the the, the low tariffs or or you know tariffs relatively low from a industrial you know post industrial era as the reasons why more developed countries have a harder time with jobs you know like they they they're losing jobs they're not able to uh, you know like they, they in terms of and I, I use this term not as a as a pejorative but more as far as low skilled work you they, these types of things move away from these countries because to manufacture something in the United States. If it's if it requires a people to do so, typically it's going to be cheaper to do so in another country, in a country where the wages can be lower and the cost of living can be lower. So it's not just you're taking advantage of people necessarily by paying less wages. It's just it takes less money to survive in a place like that. So two things just from a, a tariff standpoint that I want to mention that can, where tariffs can be used not in a punitive way, not in an overly protectionist way, but in a humane way which I think is often because the way we're looking at tariffs is kind of broad brush, negative, yada, 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 don't get, don't get taken into advantage is one, you can use them where two, two things out where you can use tariffs to raise the standards in other countries. You can force other standards or to the other countries to perform better. And one of those is wages, pay your people more of a living wage. And if you don't, we'll use a tariff to adjust that cost. So at minimum, if you are going to, to, 
pay people very under a minute, under a livable wage in your country, then you're not going to then sell it to us and undercut our workers. Another piece is the environment. And everybody's, you know, a lot of people, you know, the people that whose heads are above water, you know, are looking and saying, hey, you know what, we need to do something about the climate. But even if we, you know, the United States do all this stuff about the climate, none of the other, other, if other countries don't do it, it doesn't matter. Well, that's another place where tariffs can come into play, where you can use tariffs to say, okay, well, if you're producing things in a way, if you're, if you're, energy, uh, you know, production and so forth is, is in such a way that it's very harmful to the environment. And we're going to put a tariff on, on anything that comes from your country because you're using lack of care for the environment as a way to undercut prices elsewhere. And so we won't let you benefit from that, so to speak. We're going to try to balance that out. So tariffs can be used to kind of balance or provide ba- to, for a country to almost, if you, you can look at it like this, impose their values on others or at minimum say, okay, well, if you're going to do business with us, you have to do business with us under certain constraints. Now, you can only do that if you remain a desirable marketplace, though. If you're if nobody wants to do business with you anyway, then obviously you have no leverage with that anyway. Um, so well, I do want to ask you, because we're with t- tariffs and we've talked about you know this concept of us all being kind of raised in this time frame where free trade is the push that's the the and, and anything any dogma that goes against that is like oh you know this is these people are crazy or these people are you know very looked at in or looked at in a very negative light what's your take you know or, or like if if the US used tariffs historically so extensively one, you know, kind of when you look at that what do you see and then two why do you think things have changed so much that make tariffs so controversial um, that's a good question. So uh, clearly at the beginning and the founding of the country, if you think about kind of the 1789 period, we didn't have, you know, we're just coming out of a war and we're a new country. So the idea of um, taxation uh, of the population and all that, I mean, you know, things I'm sure weren't that organized. Uh, and there was no income years. tax, by the way. In the United States, yeah, was not, exactly. no income there tax. Was, and uh, so you no need money. Tax. Yeah, you need yeah. money and you don't have a bunch of developed industries by and large. Yeah. And also, I mean, even things like there's no corporate tax, there's no income tax on anybody, individual corporate, because I mean, you're still, the country's still new. They still got to figure out, you know, how do you, what what is a corporation? How does it look like? How does it operate? All that. So clearly um, one way to just make sure that you're bringing revenue in is that when there's imports to levy a tariff. Um, And so that lasted uh, for some time over a hundred years. And I think what really started to chip away at it, um, Probably several fold. Uh, one is, you know, just technology allowing for more more mobility globally. So by let's say from the 1790s, we still had sail ships. By the year 1900, you got you know um, diesel powered, you know, oil uh, uh, powered, um, huge, con- you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, like uh, battleships and 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 cruise ships that could take a lot of goods and, 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 and people across the world very quickly. So I'm sure that somewhere in that development, there became the need for nations to start, you know, dealing with each other in a different way and having certain agreements. Also more efficient sure. communication as well. Like I think yeah, the, the actual so, ability to physically move things, but also the ability to communicate more quickly as well, because in the 1800, you know, 1800, like you want to communicate with somebody that goes just as fast as you've been able to communicate or send the goods as well. Like you're sending yeah. letters by ship across the sea. There's no yeah. telegraph or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. So I think all the technology improvements just, just led to changes in, in terms of how we operate as societies. But, but I think one of the things that I can point my finger to would be where you alluded to just a minute ago, which is the creation and the implementation of the income tax in 1913. Because as I was looking and preparing for today, it's some of the, um, like I was looking at a chart that showed uh, the revenue of the U.S. Treasury 
uh, for the first six months of the fiscal year of 2024. This is the most recent numbers as of December 31st of 2023. And like you said, we're still here um, just a month later at the end of, of January of 24. So what, what was amazing was the amount of tax collected, probably over 80, about 70% is a combination of individual income tax and Medicare and Social Security tax. And what stuck out to me a lot was um, uh, the most recent numbers, the duties we collected, which are pretty much kind of taxes from importation. Um, they're separate from tariffs, but they're more of the way we collect fees, was $118 billion. Um, out of a number, we've collected $1.1 uh, trillion. So it's about 10%. And then the, the other shrink one was the corporate tax. And that's what stuck out to me a lot because I thought this is an example. If you want to have some sort of conspiracy theory that I might buy into would be, you know, my saying money, money and power always find each other. So I feel like it, it's, it's the slow chipping away of, of certain um, uh, uh, systems that we had maybe prior to the income tax and early on in the, let's say, the first half of the 20th century, which allowed the revenue burden. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, of what the country needs to run to be placed more on the backs of us as individual Americans, meaning the individual and the corporation was allowed over time, including now we've got the lowest corporate income tax rate uh, or one of the lowest in, in American history. Yeah. So I think that if I'm yeah, a wealthy it's, it's, person- it's, That's unmistakable when you look at the- No, no, that's that where I'm, I'm going to finish out here. From the businesses and the, and the, bus and the, the owners of the business to the individuals. Um, yeah, you know, like that, that's and, and why, that's why I want to explain this real quick for 30 seconds. Why would somebody really wealthy, I'm talking about billionaires, 100 millionaire status, want to do that? And this is where the game becomes, again, there, there's international um, agreements for various reasons. We all know that there's islands like the Cayman Islands, the Bahamas, um, the island of Jersey, for example, countries like Switzerland uh, that have been seen as tax havens or tax shelters. And what happens is some of these, especially the, the Caribbean islands, are very, very favorable. If you set up a corporation, you got to be pretty wealthy because it's not cheap to do it. But what you can do is take a dividend from the corporation. You can get income a certain way and not pay taxes. So the bottom line is, is if you can if you can keep the corporate tax rate as low as possible, it's one way to legally escape. Uh, the same taxation that is now levied upon individuals. And that's where books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, for example, from 25 years ago, try and explain that being an employee in the United States is the worst tax position to be in. And there's yeah. a reason for that. So I think that has a lot to do with well, why the I, idea I, I of tariffs went down. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, the the idea basically there were benefits that people learned there were other ways to do it, or maybe not learned, but it was established there were other ways to do it, and then that those ways might have been more beneficial for people who were shaping public opinion, and so they say, okay, well let's shape public opinion in the way to to make tariffs toxic, even though at the time of tariffs, you know, like you look at the first hundred hundred fifty years of the country. Tariffs never really like in terms of the average tariff rate, it never drops below ten percent. You know, yeah. and now we're way below 5% in terms of that. And then we've been like that for a long time. I think that there are two ways you can look at it. I mean, in one way, I think both, I don't think, oh, I should say this. I don't think either is necessarily mutually exclusive. Definitely, you can, it's an unmistakable trend to where you see the funding of the government, of the United States government, move from business and commercial aspects 
to individual aspects. Like you can see that in Mistakeable. So that lends to the idea of, okay, well, the business owners and so forth as a concern, made a concerted effort to, to, to pay less. And so, and if you're going to pay less, you got to come up with another way to make the money. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's go to the people and have them chip in more. And so there's that. Uh, but also, again, I, I think you, you got to look at the, how the technological environment changed over this time period in terms of communications, in terms of being able to move things around. And it does open up more opportunities. And it would be naive to say that each country and all, and, and, and as the world becomes more interconnected, that each country is going to just be remain its own silo. The problem that you run into is that, from what I see, is that while tariffs as an absolute form and everybody being their own silo would not be a way for a, an, a global economy that can continue to grow and produce more prosperity for more people. That's not the way to do it. The, the, the alternative doesn't necessarily have to be the other, the complete other side. And I, I, this goes back again to the initial question I asked, free trade absolutist or protectionist. Well, neither one of those are really the answer. Because, and, and what you end up seeing a lot of times, I think, and why there's such a negative perception of, protect, of, of tariffs is that people have kind of staked out this ground that, okay, it's either you go free trade 100% or you're a protectionist. <laughs> it's one or the other. Like there is no pl- way that you can say, okay, well, let, how about we have instead of global free trade, why don't we look at regional free trade? And so like you set up free trade regions where, you know, maybe these this collection of, of states, these collection of countries gets together and they have a free trade zone and then others might do so. What you do with, with something like that, why that may end up with more prosperity as well as more broadly shared prosperity is that when you put all of the same workers around the world on the same floor, basically, and then and people can move goods freely. You, you really do countries that have done better over time. You punish them for having done better and having a higher, you know, uh, a, a standard of living and so forth. You punish them for that. And in fact, you, you, instead of, well, th- there is motion to bring some of the lower countries up, but, and you're putting motion also on bringing the higher countries down. And so there are ways when you when you do that, there are ways actually to bring everybody up or at least maintain the people who have gains, not bring them down as much. So I think the bigger issue is the absolute aspect. Do you have to be free trade across the board 100 percent or do you have to be protectionist? If you're looking at it as that, then, yeah, the protectionism is probably worse than absolute free trade. But at the same time, there are still better ways to do it. And But when it's presented as one coin or the other, then, yeah, you're going to end up having a negative view of tariffs because it's like, well, tariffs, if, if it's protectionist and that's it, it's going to be worse. That's worse than, than than having some some ability to trade and move things around. Yeah. And it's just interesting because when you really think about it, I mean, this is probably the the, the the one of the longest issues maybe for, you know, human societies and, and, and their said leaders in terms of governments or kings or whatever, in terms of uh, just dealing with this, because you have, remember, just for everyone listening, you've got obviously a, a global world. One of the main things that, that is needed around the world in different ways is, are things like natural resources. Um, so it could be some country or nation sits on large deposits of nickel or copper or iron, and then another country sits on a large oil deposit, right? And they want to trade because both need something, you know, that the other has. And so this is where this all comes from. And I think 
we're talking a lot about the financial aspect of, you know, how do you raise money for the treasury of said country and all that. There's also other things. I mean, this maybe go back to some of the, what I alluded to earlier as, 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 as some strategic reasons, sorry, st- strategic reasons that a country may decide to either impose tariffs or lighten tariffs. And, you know, I'm thinking of things like, number one, when we imposed tariffs in 2018, for example, one thing that the European Union did was retaliate with actually um, specifically targeting bourbon from the United States. I learned then that we do one billion a year of exports of bourbon to Europe. And they put massive tariffs on, which hurt our bourbon sales, which may have hurt workers in Kentucky and areas like that. So there's, there is the war aspect. Then there's the other, which is um, even, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say this. I was going to say humanitarian, but that's not the right word, but a relief on certain pressures from us. So I'm thinking something like NAFTA, for example, the North American Free Trade Agreement. First of all, to your point, James, transportation, especially between three countries, meaning United States, Mexico, and Canada that sit on each other's border. Yeah, contiguous. Got to, yeah, got to a point where I'm sure that you just had to maybe update some of the laws about how quickly can a, a, a container truck pass through uh, a given uh, border crossing, things like that. But then there's other things, because remember, we've got a lot of conversation today still about immigration in our country from the southern border. Um, which the fact that Mexico's not going anywhere and we're not, that might be a long-term conversation for, for the rest of the nation's uh, you know, existence. But the reality, remember, most of the people today in, in, in the recent period of time are not Mexicans trying to get across to our country, even though I know some of them are still Mexican nationals. Most of them are people coming from the real beat-up areas like Venezuela, Honduras, El Salvador, yeah. Central Americans, right? But remember... Prior to the 90s, especially, well, let's say prior to the year 2000, but really the 80s into the 90s saw an influx of actual Mexican uh, migrants trying to cross illegally. And what most of the time was for work. The Mexican economy was beat up. So one of the goals of NAFTA was to say, look, if we help the Mexicans prop up their own economy through making building factories and having our corporations hire more Mexican workers, their economy over time will improve. And they hire will, Mexican workers in Mexico. Correct, in Mexico. And, yeah. and then be yeah. able to bring the stuff here with correct. no problem. Yeah. Correct. So it's, stuff it, that it, it was seen to have a double benefit, to your point, because I didn't think of that. One is Mexican labor would be cheaper. Number two is Mexican people en masse would become employed. So that means, A, our goods might be able to be imported for cheaper and sold to Americans for cheaper than we can make them domestically. And then number two, if the, Ameri- if the Mexican economy does better, then there'll be less of a reason for people to try and cross the border illegally. So Which again, both of this, those things happened. You know, both yeah, of those and, things and, happened. And here's now. what I was going to say. That could be a great noble idea, right? And that's why I think, like you said about being absolutist, I'm glad we tried it, right? I'm sure the benefits seem to have outweighed the negatives now. What are some of the negatives? Did it cost some American factory jobs? I'm sure it did, and the evidence does show that. The second thing is, there's something we can't control there, which is the Mexican culture and how their government operates, the level of corruption, and the the influence of things like the drug cartels and all that. So we can only do so much in a a country like that without doing what we try to do in Iraq, which is literally going in to do regime change, which 
I definitely am not recommending that we try and send our military into Mexico just to fix their their own. Well, and I mean, and that doesn't that doesn't necessarily no, that's that's not point, like Iraq James, is the saying, model of, <laughs> of stability. No, but I'm now. saying, but I'm, I'm making that extreme statement, James, because to your point about absolutists, this is why you know nothing's perfect, right? Like NAFTA was a genuine attempt to fix something, but then it's 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 turned into for a lot of Americans, it's become a boogeyman. Well, but I think NAFTA isn't very instructive, though, because when I talk about the idea of a regional agreement versus doing it just worldwide, yes, there would be – you talked about the benefits from the ability to, to one, strengthen Mexico, bring their – bring their stand, their standard of living was lower than ours. You bring theirs up some, and it might chip ours just down a little bit, but it – makes people in Mexico happier, makes them less likely to want to, to give up or you know, to risk it all to come here, you know? So you have that. And you, so you decrease pressure in that way there. But where this becomes, where it becomes untenable is that if you say, okay, well, let's do that. Let's take that same concept and do it across the whole world. You put your own standard of living in free fall. It just, you can weather it more. There's just less people in Mexico than there are in all of Asia, for example. And so when you make the American worker compete just against Mexico, there's only so much how much that or so much that can chip away from what the American worker has achieved over the last hundred years or something like that. Versus if you make the American worker compete against everybody across the whole world, that puts a lot more downward pressure on it. So regional agreements are just more tenable. They're 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 going to have less of an impact. Now, when we talk about the impact, so we should talk about it both ways, because how do tariffs affect people? You know, like and so one way, the, the most direct way that people go to first is that if you put a tar- an import tariff on something, then typically speaking, as I mentioned at the very beginning, people are going to pay higher prices for the thing that is subject to that tariff. If it becomes retaliatory, you brought this up with the bourbon, then that will the people who work in the United States and then if their products are being exported, if we put a tariff on somebody and then somebody puts a tariff on us, then what ends up happening is, OK, well, that worker their job may become at risk because if you're selling bourbon, if you're if I'm in the bourbon industry and we stop start we, our billion dollars in sales going to Europe start becoming in jeopardy, that, that may put pressure on people in the bourbon industry. So it could cost jobs you know, in the United States if tariffs become are, are, are reciprocated against us. So there are or ways make that my this- Zach Daniels bottle a lot more expensive. <laughs> well, it, it, should make it, your, it should make yours more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it should make the guy in London's more expensive. You know, so. But either way, so there are, it's not, there are no, it's, this goes back to the kind of the idea with economics that there are no free lunches. Like what you have to do, and this is why I think you said something very key there, we tried NAFTA. And so if we're going to be honest about it, then we can learn, okay, well, what what can we learn from this as far as what worked, what didn't work, and how can we do it better in the future? Or what, what should we avoid if we're doing a trans-Pacific partnership or if we're doing anything like that? But the problem a lot of times that we end up with is that either, the, 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 the problem you end up with is that a lot of times people come in already with what they decided what they want to do. They're not interested in learning the lessons from what we've already seen. So I do want to look, you know, just kind of, because I, I want to keep us moving, um, with the current talk, you know, with the idea of <laughs> 10% on everything, or which pe- people have said, you know, with, which Trump's thrown out, said, oh, well, it's not enough to really fundamentally change anything, but it's something that could give our people a little bit more of a leg up here domestically or something like that. Um, Nikki Haley saying, you know, this is a terrible idea, or he, even uh, now, and I don't know if this is just bluster, but, you know, Trump talking potentially a 60% tariff on, <laughs> on, on China or whatever. Any comments on those before we get out of here on this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, look, I, I'm glad you said you don't know how much is bluster because you're right. We're, we, we need to acknowledge we're in a, a presidential election year and, and people are going to say things to get attention. So I think not 
you know, all of the 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 the, the, the presidential uh, uh, nominees will do that. So I think we do need to kind of just be patient and sift through some of that. Now, it's interesting because I think that this conversation, the way it's being had, is is also reflects just maybe the 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 opinions and the ideology of whoever's saying it. So, for example, Nikki Haley. Um, you know, not getting too much into, again, political kind of jokes and conspiracy, but if she's being funded by the likes of the Koch brothers and other billionaires mm-hmm. who have a lot of business interests, she's going to be against tariffs because a lot of they exports, don't want that kind of, you know, a lot of, yeah, exports. that's going to distort their, and, their kind of, yeah, their activity, right? Someone like President Trump, who has, um, from an ideological standpoint is number one, wants to be seen as tough and strong. And number two, um, you know, however it plays out is saying He's, America He plays first. out as more of a populist, though. So, I mean, yeah, so, so saying like, yeah. like we don't need to go into whether something like this would hurt America, but just the uh, the rhetoric and the and the marketing of the idea of America first, you know, hammer in China sounds like, you know, direction he needs to go in. So, well, but not just that. As a populist, someone would be more inclined to do things that would be considered along more protectionist, you know, saying, yeah. hey, even but if it I mean, hurts is, us, is, we, we will we will cut our nose to spite our face if it We'll, we'll we'll pay higher to p- prices for things in, in order to to have more jobs here, you know. Like and yeah. so and that again, that's not saying with judgment. That's just saying in terms of the incentives based on how you market yourself and how you present yourself. Things that would that would tend to create more jobs in the U.S. even if it creates higher costs, a protectionist person, a populist person would lean more towards that stuff. Yeah, and and I think and that's where again the this idea of. Um, kind of what is uh, like the ideology behind it to me is interesting too, because even we can look at president, former president Trump's first term, right? When he had, um, when he had implemented initially the tariffs on China, that was, that was, that was seen as one way to deal with a foreign adversary who looks like they're potentially can grow as powerful as us. And we may want to stop that. The prior ideology for the prior president was something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was more of let's let's create a trading partnership, like you say, a tariff, maybe a tariff-free or tariff-reduced zone within all the neighbors of China and the Pacific allies of ours on the on the on the um, on our side on the in the Western Hemisphere. So countries like Chile and Mexico and us and Canada, who have you know uh, are on the Pacific coast, and, and this way Asian we can kind of as well, yeah. Yeah, we can freeze out China over time. And maybe if we move more manufacturing to, to Vietnam and Thailand and Taiwan and all that, we'll just weaken and diminish China over time, kind of like the tortoise, where former President Trump was more like the hare. I want to hit him now, boom, and, and create a disruption. So this is ideological, right, how you deal with this. And I think that... Um, Going forward, well, some of that point, is ideological, but some of that's just personality, you know, like, yeah, because you said tortoise yeah. and hare type of thing. Like, OK, I'm the personality type to say, hey, let's try to diminish their let's try to diminish their relative strength with something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Or let's try to just hit them straight in the nose right now. And, you know, w- with some people, cri- the criticism of some of the stuff in 2018 was just that it was without it wasn't targeted. It was like yeah. there was it was seeking more of an emotional satisfaction than something that would actually be a chess move that two or three steps ahead, we're coming out ahead versus, Hey, will we get the emotional satisfaction of, of hitting them on the notes? Yeah. And, and I think one of the things to, to the point you bring up about that, just being kind of a, Hey, let's just do this and not really think of the consequence. There's always consequences. Like we talked about NAFTA even, um, was the $30 billion, uh, that the Trump administration then had to commit and pay to American farmers. 
because once we hit China with tariffs, they had retaliatory tariffs. And again, when you don't think these things through, that's what happened. That's when we learn. Again, I thank former President Trump because I learned a lot under his four years because that's when I learned that we, you know, the, one of our biggest exports to China is soy and corn. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's the deal. We're importing all the crap and electronics and they're importing food and we're selling them, you know, our farmers are, are doing the, you know, the economic activity. So that's kind of my point about tariffs, right? What I learned in preparing for today, because I was much more negative on tariffs and then I read a bit and was like, okay, they can actually be neutral if, again, implemented over time. And like you said, with some sort of targeted focus. Yeah. The concern would be, like you said, from an emotional and ideological st- sense, if anybody, not just President Trump, but anybody comes in and says, I'm just going to put 60% tariffs across the board because I feel like it because I don't like China now after I praise the Chinese president every freaking time I open my mouth. Um, then what you're going to see is that 11% of our economic activity get totally disrupted. And we learned, again, ecosystems can can deal with slow change over time. But if you have disruptive change, it's going to throw everything out of whack. So, you know, the, the, the disruption of the supply chain in 2020 wasn't that comfortable. Yeah. Well, it's particularly because so, you know, things are so interconnected. I mean, so there are, it, it, you're talking about chess moves. There's so many downstream effects on anything you do when we're talking about global trade. trade. Yeah. So to me, I, I'm happy that they're bringing it up. Because I think the conversation is a worthwhile conversation to have. I mean, obviously, we're having the conversation now talking about it because, again, I, I don't like the idea that these things like we, it's all just accepted that this stuff is just bad and we shouldn't look any further into it because there are places in way, ways that these things can be helpful. When you're talking about tariffs, the first question you should be asking a lot of times is, what are you trying to accomplish with the tariff? You know, are you trying to accomplish something that we say, hey, we have, you know, you go back to the founding of the country. There are certain industries that they wanted to develop. And so they say, okay, well, if we want to develop this industry, we have to put a tariff on other people's goods in that industry. Because if everybody can just import them, they won't take the time here to develop the industry. And over time, the thinking was, and this is like, you know, Alexander Hamilton type stuff, over time, you can develop these industries and they you'll, you'll have cost savings because once the industries are developed, then it won't be cheaper to import it than it would be to develop it. That's less so the issue now, at least in the United States. Once you've already reached the top dog status, the biggest issue you have is that your cost, your your, your the, the cost of living, the, the the cost to live is so high that you, your workers are going to make you less competitive in terms of manufacturing goods. And so that's what we lived with over the last 50, you know, 70 years or so. And so, but that doesn't mean that we have to just throw our hands up and just do free trade. And again, it has to be, there have to be ways to be targeted either to protect industries, protect workers in certain industries, or use it again in a way that we can force other countries to either live up to a higher standard from a, a, um, a, a worker standpoint, or like I said, in the future, from a, a climate standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. And so there, they, we, again, we shouldn't be pulling out arrows out the quiver and just throwing them away. You know, like these things, they, they have a long history and there are ways that they've been used to the benefit. There have been ways they've been used to the detriment. There are pros and cons. But for that reason, again, you, you have to look at it, try to understand what you're trying to accomplish and then understand what you're dealing with. And that's how tariffs can form a part of a economic policy for a nation in a way that doesn't just under, submarine all global trade or, you know, put put the, the hammer on it. So, or, or we can just put 60% tariffs on a country we say we don't like and just feel good about it. You're good, man. And then go That's to the bar, lot. man. That was a lot shorter and, 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 and quicker. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> All right. So for, for the transition of all transitions from tariffs <laughs> to 
polyamory and which is, you know, poly, you know, amory. So that, that's talking about, you know, like what we're seeing in, in the culture, so to speak, is a, 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 a lot of discussion on relationships, which, of course, you know, you always have a discussion on relationship magazines, everything. We're talking about relationships. But polyamory, which, you know, people consider to be a consensual relationship where a person will be with in a, you know, not monogamy, but a, a relationship with multiple people. So, and you, so you'll have, you know, a woman and she'll have two guys and, you know, they, they all know about each other and they're all good with the arrangement. So obviously just from the traditional culture that we've seen this, which is one of monogamy in the United States, this seems to some a little bit different or to others crazy. So Tunde, uh, I want to get from your standpoint, what's your, you know, what stands out to you? We've been just for reference. We there was a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal. We'll have that in the show notes talking about polyamorous relationships. And, you know, so I want to know, you know, like from that piece, we can start with just kind of what stood out to you, you know, like or what would you make out of, of reading these stories about, you know, kind of these polyamorous relationships that that were, were profiled? Um, my wife said I couldn't speak in this section of our show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, then I told her that the article was in the Wall Street Journal. She said, "Okay." Hey, um, yeah, well, that, that, there's a reason we chose the Wall Street Journal. This is a this is a very no, but uh, um, buttoned up. It's place funny. I, I realized, as in a serious note, because I, I went and uh, you know I, I showed her the article and, and said, you know, why don't we try something like this? And then I got slapped <laughs> in the face. So I realized that I'm pretty boring compared to what a lot of people are doing. Um, I was surprised to see that they are estimating as many as 22% of Americans um, engage in this type of behavior, which is 1% lower than the 23% of Americans who have their a bachelor degree as their highest thing. I was like, okay, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Almost a quarter yeah. of the country. Um, is that, that's what I mean. That seems like a high number because, I mean. Hey, man, you don't know what's happening. You and I are friends. I guess we never really sat down and had this conversation about how we live (laughs) with our wives. But I'm assuming most people, not a quarter of the people I know, are sitting there that are married, um, having, like, bringing over somebody. uh, That's what I mean. It's one thing. It's not necessarily. I mean, and not to get too down into the weeds, but it doesn't strike me as swinging, so to speak. It seems like no. That's my saying. Like a you know, no, you've got a relationship, so it's it's not cheating, right? It's cheating with consent, and that's what I mean. Like, I, I, I just, I mean, maybe people are doing this, and I'm just out of the loop, right? Like, I just haven't had a conversation with anyone I know that's married. That's like, yeah, yeah, Um, my side piece is showing up for dinner with my wife tonight. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. Well, but the thing to me, actually, this on one hand, this to me to me seems like one of those things where one, we might be in denial or like we're just not paying attention because this struck me as maybe we're just not at the cool table, dude. Like there might be some stuff going on. We don't know. I'm saying we culturally, like the whole thing, because this is isn't this exactly it? Doesn't the French president have a, a a mistress and a wife? Like this seems to be exactly that. And that's like in public view, everything. This is a, a policy, or maybe it's the maybe the the previous president, not maybe not the current one, or maybe the current one. I'm not. I'll, I'll just. I'll, I got enough, I got a enough bit to keep doubt. up with our politics here. I ain't trying to chase presidents in other countries. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm not saying it to cast aspersions. I'm saying like, no, I, know. I think we've so, seen this. Like, and and we don't think much about it. I think one of the things that stood out to me in the article was that one of the people they profiled was a woman. You know, and she had her husband, and then she had her boyfriend, and it was like it was in the boyfriend and the husband. You know, they were cool, and you know, like. It was they weren't cool like they were together, but they were cool like they knew the arrangement and everything like that. And so maybe this is something that 
we are aware of, but we kind of look past it or we just we, we tend to if you're not engaged in the lifestyle, you just think, oh, that's just other people. And there just may be more other people that happen. So like so you look at it from that standpoint. I'm like, OK, maybe it, it, it to your numbers, you know, it, it may be more common than it seems like, because when I go to dinner, I don't see a bunch of threesome couples that seem to all just be together, so to speak. But one of the things that stood out to me uh, getting to the, the meat of the article was just how in those relationships, people seem to have different roles. And so like you'd have the, the woman would have one husband who was or would have her husband who was more of her emotional. And then the other guy was more of her, you know, like that. that's not to say that he was a plaything, but just kind of like that was kind of the person she do more adventurous things. We would go hiking and stuff like that. And so there seemed to be kind of a break between the roles of each person, which kind of reminded me of just regular friendship, you know, just like, okay, yeah, I got, if I'm going to the bar, I got, you know, certain friends I would hit up. And if I'm going to the library, I got other friends I would hit up or something like that, you know? So it, it, it seems, it, it doesn't seem as crazy when you kind of look at the, the, the mechanics of how these things are happening, other than the fact that we are, our society tends to hold up monogamy as the standard. Yeah, no. And I think part of it is it got me thinking, I wrote some notes here. So I'm going to have a joke here uh, first about just personality because when I was <laughs> reading the article, that? yeah, no, I was, <laughs> I was reading it and I just realized, cause when you're saying about um, the, it, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I just don't live like this. I'm pretty satisfied with the one person I'm with, meaning, you know, not to get like right into details, but the bedroom stuff's fine for me. And then the companionship part is fine for me too. And that's what I realized, like you're saying on a serious note, it was like somebody's people, they really have their, their spouse is the one they really have the relationship they enjoy, they love. There's just something missing in the bedroom. So they got the side piece for that. And like you said, others, maybe that bedroom, maybe certain things are good, but they actually, there's a part of the emotional side that, that is not being satisfied by, let's say, the spouse. Maybe it's not negative enough that they want to get a divorce and leave. Maybe they enjoy, you know, most of the, the time. But like you're saying, maybe if the spouse doesn't like, you know, mountain climbing and, or, 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 you know, mountain biking in, 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 in the trails, but the side piece does, that just is another way to get an outlet and be happy. Right. And, and fulfill yeah. that need. So that's kind of what I realized. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not wired to, um, to want to go in that direction. Did, you know, at least the way my life and my brain has evolved. Um, the other part I realized I was joking in my head, reading about this, like scheduling could make, I'm just quoting the, the article here, quote, scheduling can make a military planner sweat. More relationships mean more drama from in-laws to breakups, not to mention the lack of sleep. And then it says, who has time for this? End quotes, you know, and that's what I was thinking. Like, I'm so lazy um, and, and so um, content with being chill like a tortoise. I, I, I'd be too stressed out trying to manage more people, I'd be stressed out trying to manage schedules and time. And, and so it's just not for me. For some people, that might well, I be. I don't think that the suggestion here is that it's for everybody, though. I mean, I think kind of what we're talking about here is the fact that it may be different different strokes for different folks, so to speak. And oh, I agree. Actually, it's it the realize, opposite. Like, what we, but what we <laughs> normally see is the idea that monogamy should be for everyone. And so this kind of challenges that to say, okay, what well, is monogamy for everyone? Because some people apparently seem to do just fine not doing monogamy. I will say this, though. The I, I can definitely see where, from a cultural standpoint, the idea of monogamy came from, because I look, I look at these things and I'm like, these people must be very mature, you know, because 
from just a societal standpoint, remember a lot of norms in society evolve from the idea of keeping things from just boiling over all the time. Like if you're in a, a village of a hundred and, and 150 people, you can't have, I mean, what one of the 10 commandments is about, you know, not going after other people's you know spouses because just from like, you can't, you can't hold a band of 150 people together. If everybody's going after these other spice, each other's spouses. So you got to have a level of, uh, 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 you gotta have certain kind of norms that will allow a group to function together. And so to me, that's what I see monogamy as, as kind of serving in many respects more than anything. Most people I don't know could handle emotionally the, the intimate relationships foster jealousy, you know, things like that. So it seems like most people probably aren't going to be wired to do something like this because I don't see how most people would be able to, to deal with the idea of in an intimate relationship, they're quote unquote sharing. So it seems like monogamy kind of fits into that. But from what we're seeing here, maybe that's just there are people who I did like definitely this wouldn't be for everyone. But there are people who seemingly from a, a just kind of emotional makeup standpoint are able to, to deal with those emotions or don't feel those emotions the same way that maybe many people would where they'd be out here, you know, like getting in fights and, and attacking people over something like this. Yeah, I think maybe we should do our next show on this from Utah. And apparently we might be able to find some people that can, we could interview and ask them how that goes to be married to. Hey, you know, man, if we go up and down women. the street, we should be able to find you know, <laughs> yeah. one out of every four. <laughs> apparently they're not as out in the open about it. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. no, it's um, no, but uh, you said something about the societal thing. And that got me thinking about just uh, even discussions we've had, like on the book Sapiens, you know, this idea of a real and imagined order. And if, you know, just for the audience, the book Sapiens talked about this from a cultural standpoint. So the real order would be something like physics, right? Like gravity. Um, I throw I throw a rock in the air, it's going to drop on the ground. That's that's kind of just the natural laws. We're not going to affect those too much, right? Yeah. But or like I talk, need water and food and air to survive. Yeah, to survive, you know, yeah. Like it's not, it's not so, a cultural thing. Correct. So that's why it's called the real order. The imagined order would be things we spend a lot of time on this show talking about, like tariffs, right? Like Like things like... The idea of systems, uh, you know, laws, races, religion, caste systems, yeah, all yeah. that, the way we, we organize ourselves as people, to your point about laws, right? The way, in fact, I got to wear a seatbelt. That's an imagined order. Like, you know, we, we weren't, that's not a natural law, right? Dri so, yeah, driving so, on the right side of the road in the United States. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so as we're having the conversation, I kind of realized, I wrote a note, like, it's interesting because uh, at first I started thinking about we're really at a, a still um, uh, dealing with um, just the cultural influence that we've all had from the Victorian age. I mean, we're, we're a British colony, right? Yeah. So a lot of the things of, you know, the, the Protestant uh, version of Christianity, the way we marry, all that, is a very Victorian age still influence on us. Yeah. And then I thought, then I made me think further back, well, it's actually all three Abrahamic religions. And you. that's why I'm glad you brought it up um, in terms of even the Ten Commandments has things that says, you know, one to one. It, it, you know, don't cover that neighbor's wife, or don't cover, it didn't say don't cover his wives, or, you know, only cover the third one. So it, it already gives us impression that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of like a one-to-one -one kind of mate situation, as opposed to, remember, we learned in Sapiens, there was a tribe, I don't remember where it was, if it was in South America or somewhere else, I think it was South America, um, where they identified that the men and women just, the women kind of just had sex with all the men while she's pregnant because the idea was that then the man, no man knows which child in the village is his and they just take care of all the kids. Yeah. And so to me, that's, that's a different imagined order. That's something that we can even, like you said about jealousy and all that, imagine seeing your pregnant 
wife going there sleeping with a bunch of guys constantly. He'd be like, hold on. So, so it's interesting. Um, sorry, don't imagine that. But <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, I said I'm sorry. I didn't mean that personally. <laughs> but um, don't ever listen to this. Um, I don't want to get a text. I don't want to get a text. Keep, keep later. going, man. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Stop so, picking. Um, <laughs> I know it's not you. It's not him. Um, so, but that's what I was thinking. I was like, so in our Abrahamic religions, the other thing I've noticed for a long time, think about how we all point fingers at each other, meaning the three main ones, Christians, Jews, and, and Muslims. But they're so similar. So if you think about it, if you look at the fundamentalists in all three religions, the, the people that practice what I would say the extreme, um, and I don't mean that negatively, I just mean they're fundamental in their beliefs. Um, so if you look at Orthodox Jews, You'll never see a woman without a headscarf, right? We know that the Muslims, um, you know, the, 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 the moderate people wear a hijab. The extremes make the woman wear a burqa. And then you've got Christianity. I've never seen a nun's hair, right? The nun wear a habit, right? And, and so, and really religious Christian women do usually cover their hair. So that tells me that to your point about the Ten Commandments, there's something in the culture in our imagined order that started a long time ago that we've uh, all carried to today where generally it's one, you know, when you marry, it's a man and a woman, but that doesn't mean, like you said, that naturally that's the way it's always been or the way it will be. Yeah. There's certain benefits, I guess, from a societal standpoint or a cultural norm standpoint. And, but that's also looking at it from a particular culture because we can look at other cultures where, and then this, if you, if you study, you know, kind of, you know, just the, the way this happens, like you've seen cultures where the number of wives a man have will depend on how many women he can support, how many, how many kids he can support versus just, you know, a one-to-one, you know, and this other thing. So, there, it, apparently, from a human culture standpoint, and it, which has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, there is more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, ours has certain, you know, like it, it, the reason you can look to, to what's happening with our norms and say, OK, well, I understand why that's there right now. You know, we're in a, we're in a, a place in society where people are challenging that. And it's interesting to see, because to me, again, it, it, it's not necessarily thinking, OK, that's, this is something for everybody, but that they can do it, you know, or maybe they do it for a while and maybe they don't. Like, I think the other thing that I I see with these things a lot of times is that people oftentimes with these type of social decisions or, you know, kind of, okay, I'm going to go this way in the culture. A lot of times people assume that they're going to do it forever. Like, that's the other thing here is like, somebody may be in a polyamorous situation now. That doesn't mean that they'll always be like that. They may, their, their sensibility may change, you know, so to speak, or somebody in a monogamous situation, their sensibility may change. These things, because they're kind of, what works for you that may or may not change, you know, like your friend group when you're 20 might be different than your friend group when you're 40, you know, in the same way that your, your, your tastes for relationships, so to speak. So I don't know, but to me, like I said, it is, this is very distinct from my lifestyle. And so, and as you, you've made the point that it's distinct from yours. So it, it piqued my interest in saying, okay, well, how do these people do this? You know what I'm saying? Cause like the, the biggest hurdle I see is like, okay, well, yeah. So as you so artfully put it, <laughs> <laughs> seeing, seeing your wife go off with some other persons would not strike me in a way that it would be very productive from a personal or a societal standpoint. <laughs> so, 
but I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, we're, it we're just two boring guys. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The exactly. fact we started this show talking about tariffs, is, you know, it should be the proof to everybody <laughs> listening that we ain't having that because much fun. It was because we started on tariffs that we probably had to lean this far for for part two. You know, so but no, I think I'm just saying it proves we're not having that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have that much time to have a side, uh, not a, not even a side piece. I guess a, a side piece that's not on the side that's involved. <laughs> for me to do research and go down rabbit holes on on the you know the, the 1860 tariff act you know hey, between <laughs> I, I think it's less that you don't have the, but less that you don't have the time and more that you don't have the inclination because you got enough time to have a podcast in addition to your your, your normal career so podcast is your mis- mistress is what it is basically <laughs> okay you can't say that too loud <laughs> <laughs> but give me a whole other can of worms. See, on please. that note, I think we can wrap <laughs> from there. We appreciate everyone for joining us on this episode of Kyle. Like I see it, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review us, tell us what you think, send it to a friend. And until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Ogunlana. All right, we'll talk to you next time.